Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Andreas Borges on the show. Borges is a state senator who represents the 8th District of California. As an educator, he has worked in numerous international and professional and academic capacities, including as a Fulbright Scholar, Contributing Fellow for the Woodrow Wilson Center, Policy Specialist at the U.S. Embassy in Kazakhstan, and as Commissioner on the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review and Commission. Borges began his public service career as a Fresno City Councilman and a member of the Fresno County Board of Supervisors before being elected in 2018 to the California State Senate. Andreas is the chair of the Senate Agricultural Committee and a vice chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee with other committee assignments as well. This is a wide-ranging conversation that covers a lot of interesting and diverse topics. I hope you enjoy. Let's meet Senator Borges and Baker will take us there. In the US, Fresno's best. Fresno's best. So where do you like to eat in Fresno? That's a great question, and I, I should be able to easily explain it to you, um, but I'm the cook of the household. Okay. And so I love to cook. I think one of the, the silver linings of the COVID experience uh, was that I was able to teach my two boys, um, who are 8 and 10, really had to uh, take a deep dive into, into cooking and the process. And so I tend to be a little harsh of a critic that I want to eat things that I myself can't prepare or my wife can't prepare. Uh, we, we come from a Greek family, and so we do a lot of Greek food at the house. But going out, I think one of the places that I love the most is a, um, is a Lao Thai place called B&K okay. over on the east side. And they've got the best lob, and it's taken me years to get them to give me the full spicing that I really enjoy. But it's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I I've also cooked a lot during the pandemic, and I I um, it is it is true that you know if you have the right ingredients at home, you can really recreate most things you experience. For me, it's like you know, it's someone that does barbecue well, like where I know that's going to take me four or five hours to do it, yep. or someone uh, you know, speaking of uh, you know, f- not Greek food, but like Armenian food that's done really well, like. You know, and I just had Rob Saroyan on. We were talking about our favorite Armenian places in town, and I, I'm partial to uh, to the Ark. Uh, that's that's my that's where I go to church. Um, where where is your place of worship in terms of Armenian food? Oh, place of worship. Um, no, no, I, I just mean like f- favorite restaurant in town. <laughs> the most available Armenian food in the valley uh, is influenced by the minor Asian refugees and immigrants, which has strong similarities. Uh, to Greece, because Turkey and Greece are quite similar as well. Now, as opposed to the uh, Armenians from uh, uh, former Soviet Armenia, totally different in many respects. Uh, so my preference is AJ's. If we go out and get Armenian food, AJ's, and I'm almost certain that Rob Saroyan and others who've been guests on your show would probably say the same thing. Yes, I get AJ's a lot. And yeah. Rob, you know, because I, I, was, I was saying stuff about uh, kebab and whatever, and he, he, he pointed to more vegetable-based stuff. So maybe, maybe that's part of the thing, too, is, you know, the, 
how much meat we eat in kind of Western cultures or whatever, and that meat has become the center point of Armenian dish, whereas that might not be traditional. I don't know. If, yeah, if you look back in history, eating meat was something that was special. You certainly didn't do it every day. Um, and, uh, you know, when they talk about the Mediterranean diet, the Greek diet being one of the healthiest in the world, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that those islanders had legumes and greens and fish and only meat on special occasions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am um, switching gears a little bit. We're also, we're going to talk about that region now, but in a different context. I, you know, ultimately these conversations for me are the conversations I want to have <laughs> and what interests me about someone. And, uh, you know, I, when I first I think I first learned about Kazakhstan through Borat, which is probably not the best entry point uh, to, to, to study the region. But Kazakhstan is one of the most interesting places in the world because it sits at this kind of inflection point between Russia, China, and the stands. And I, I, I'm fascinated, one, in its success, which I wonder if it's due to oil or the fact that there's a large presence of, you know, Russian, I, I don't know, I don't even know what to call Russian ethnically people living in that region. Um, but can you talk a little bit about your research there and why you think uh, Kazakhstan is having more success in the region than, you know, some of the other surrounding republics, Soviet post-satellites or whatever? Good question. So I had done my, my master's and my PhD in a very specific uh, area of study that in that dealt with the, the Uyghurs of northwestern China in Xinjiang. They've been in the news a lot yes. for the last year because of the internment camps and the detention facilities and the human rights abuses uh, committed by the, uh, by the Chinese state. So the research that I had done and I published extensively on it was to inventory the risks associated with the uh, Uyghur community within the neighboring satellite states. And that, of course, includes Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. Um, and I had served as a um, policy specialist fellow at the, uh, the embassy in Kazakhstan. And uh, so I spent a good amount of time, a good, lot, a good amount of uh, energy, intellectual scholarship on these issues. Kazakhstan is an interesting mix. It's a little bit different. Uh, from the other republics. Obviously, it has uh, a strong hydrocarbon uh, uh, industry. It also has, uh, I think, a fairly good relationship with, sorry, stuff coming in, uh, with uh, Russia and with, and with China. It, it, is, it, plays, it has historically played well with, with both. And uh, I think ultimately, the, the, the Kazakhs um, were nomadic. And the reason I bring that up is because when they wanted, when they created these centers, either in Almaty or Astana, they were brand new. And I think that has given them um, the ability to embrace the future without necessarily being weighed down by the past. And that I think makes for some pretty in interesting relationship building and some institutions um, in the process. Do you think oil is going to be uh, more of a blessing or a curse for Kazakhstan? You know, they, I, I, I forget what the number was, but they hold a large, 
a large percentage of uh, global oil reserves, given their size. Um, and then you've got these yeah. two oil hungry uh, superpowers sitting on either side of, uh, uh, you know, your nation. And it, it, it looks like it can be uh, tricky and complicated. And it seems like they've had some success, you know, just having something to export for a long time. Yeah, they have, they have traditionally, the, the Stans have this informal arrangement and mind you, my knowledge is a little bit dated now, but they've allowed the military uh, and spheres of influence to be dominated by Russia and the economic sphere to be dominated by China. And within that kind of unique equilibrium, the oil industry has proven very, very important to China, uh, not only for uh, its deliverables, but the, <clears throat> the Tengiz oil fields are some of the largest uh, ever found. Now, I think as we reduce in the West uh, through our, our accords and our political agendas, as we reduce our dependence on oil, that's only going to really pertain to us because I think the, the behemoth uh, that is China is going to continue to be a massive consuming uh, entity and it's going to continue to make uh, the Stans important because of that, especially Kazakhstan. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the Uyghurs. Um, I just read today that New Zealand, uh, you know, denied the use of using the word genocide. Uh, we we have used the word genocide to describe what's going on. What do you think beyond just naming it uh, U.S. policy policy around this issue should be? Uh, do you think there needs to be more pressure around some kind of accountability and what does that even look like? Great question. I think what we saw with the Armenian genocide issue um, uh, on April 24th when the Biden administration officially recognized it as a genocide after 106 years, I think the backdrop to that is that if America wishes to reassert itself globally um, and uh, assume that uh, that institution building and that human rights are part of the pillars of American foreign policy, then they can't address the Uyghur issue unless they address some of the other issues or at least make overtures to doing so. Now, the issue with the, the Uyghurs is uh, that they have had, you know, post 9-11, they have had uh, terrorist cells that have originated from these areas. But the research that has been done and the scholarship that's been done is that these are localized, they're not necessarily uh, as well developed, and they certainly don't apply to the largest portion of the population. Uh, and I think China taking the strong hand of Beijing uh, to this area is doing so for political re reasons and has done so under the guise of uh, national security. And frankly, if we're going to, as America, uh, uh, challenge Beijing's human rights record, we have to be careful that, uh, you know, we periodically keep an eye in the, in the mirror. And that's why I think uh, these other developments are occurring as well. The term genocide um, is a fairly modern term. It's a fairly modern legal concept, even though I think intuitively everyone understands that when you attempt to eliminate a race, a people, um, a sex, um, uh, you name it, that it would fall into either a genocide or a crimes against humanity. But those have very different legal implications. So I think when folks say genocide, 
they may not always mean the strict legal definition of uh, charter definition of genocide. But from my standpoint, I believe it absolutely fits because the, no, the Chinese state has made all its instrumentality um, and brought them to bear on dismantling the cultural significance and separation between the Turkic Uyghur culture and the Han uh, uh, Mandarin uh, culture. Yeah, and it kind of leads to my next question. I, I did some interesting reading on uh, Chinese scholars' interpretation of ancient texts, as we all do in our spare time. And um, the one thing that got brought up a couple different times was, you know, this Thucydides trap, which is this famous uh, idea that was put out by a scholar in 2011, uh, you know, kind of comparing what Thucydides described, you know, this uh, rivalry between Athens and Sparta, uh, naturally leading to war, and then compared that to the relationship with U.S. and China. Um, and it was interesting that Chinese scholars saw themselves as the kind of upstart Athens and the United States as kind of the decadent Sparta. Uh, so what do you think about, uh, do you think the Thucydides trap is just kind of a, a fun little scholarly game in someone's mind? Or do you think it's a, it's a real thing that we need to be thinking about, which is, you know, we're kind of, you have these two glo global superpowers uh, competing for control. At the same time, you know, I mean, China's really just struggling to have control of the South China Sea. They're not really concerned about, you know, expanding beyond, you know, beyond that at this point. And so the idea that, you know, we would be encroaching on each other's space in the near term seems unlikely. But what is your take? Well, um, I served for a couple of years on the U.S.-China uh, Security uh, Commission, uh, which is a bipartisan commission uh, of federal appointees um, to offer advice to uh, uh, the uh, legislative branch and elsewhere. Thucydides, that trap is very interesting. I'm, I'm surprised you, you brought it up, but that I think historically is absolutely the dynamic that not just America and China um, are experiencing, but historically going back to the ancient world, and anytime someone you know refers to ancient Greece, I kind of just smile because I, I love history. Um, I think if you look at if you look at history, the Thucydides trap has strongest application in the pre-nuclear era. In a post-nuclear era, it becomes a little bit less uh, of a corollary, and the reason for that is because a relatively small country. Um, in a relatively large country, both can inflict extraordinary damage upon web, on one another, possibly to the extent of extinction, um, by virtue of you know, the post-World War II nuclear uh, network that existed worldwide. China being a nuclear power, you know, Israel and you know, Pakistan and India, there's lots of nuclear powers um, around right now. So I think the idea of warfare is something that it, we would be absolutely remiss to not acknowledge is very real, yeah. especially in the South China Sea. Yeah. But let's not kid ourselves. China's ambitions are, 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 are not as they are represented by the Chinese apparatus. You know, they are fully building out their Africa uh, base in Djibouti. Uh, they have uh, multi-use port access control um, you know, whether it's in Greece or across, across the globe. So we are in an era of Pacific competition, and it will define 
the entire century, I suspect. Um, but there is probably a very high likelihood that we will have military conflict, but maybe not full-scale uh, world war um, uh, at the level that we experienced before. It'll be kind of like, you know, elements of the Cold War where you have these proxy fights over regions that provide resources or something, right? Where you'll have the U.S. And, and China fighting over, you know, certain mining facilities in Africa or whatever it might be. Um, so that's kind, of, that's kind of what you're getting at is what I'm gathering. Yeah, and, but I also, I also think that um, we are in a philosophical war. It's not as clearly defined as it once was during the U.S.-Soviet uh, era, but the U.S.-China era of autocracy versus the sustainability of democracies, we are now in a more clearly defined philosophical role on what form of government is best in this new world order, because we are certainly in uh, an emerging and nascent new world order. I could talk about this stuff all day, but I'm gonna make a transition a little further sure. back in your career uh, when you were on uh, different domains of the local government in Fresno on the city council, as well as the uh, board of supervisors. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the differences and similarities between those governing bodies, just in terms of how they get things done? I mean, I think people in Fresno are much more familiar with uh, the city council and who the city council members are and the kinds of things that they want to do. And then the board of supervisors kind of seems it's like this mysterious cabal of ag interests or something that like stand apart and um, you don't really know their names or what they do exactly, but they seem like they have a lot of power. Um, can you describe kind of the differences to give people some uh, a picture of how these two bodies work? Uh, certainly. And so I came I came to Fresno after law school back east, and uh, we had been living overseas. Anna, my my wife Anna is a Fresno native, and so I took a job teaching at uh, San Joaquin College of Law, and got involved in civic affairs. Eventually ran ran for city council. So the city council one of the easiest ways to understand how the city of Fresno polit political system works is that it is a modified strong mayor form of government. And what I mean by that is there is essentially a CEO of the, uh, um, of the city of Fresno. So look upon that as the executive branch and look upon the city council as the legislative branch. They share power in different ways over different jurisdictions. So the rule is if you can get um, five city council members to agree on something, then they can override the power of the mayor. But they have no control over directing city staff on what to do. So there's this built-in inherent tension between the mayor, who is the figurehead and most powerful person in the city of Fresno, but collectively than the city council of seven, they have to share uh, power in a variety of different ways. County of Fresno, however, does not have a mayor. It has five supervisors uh, who basically have very strong control over the district they represent. And because they're, uh, such, a, they're such a small number, um, they will basically instruct the CAO on what to do. And the CAO is the, is the, uh, the county administrative officer uh, who is more like the manager. So the, the board is totally different. One, it doesn't get anywhere near the media coverage 
the city council does. So folks, you're totally right. Folks don't necessarily know who their supervisor is and don't necessarily know what jurisdiction they have. And so when you compare those two animals, they're dramatically different in culture and in process. Uh, and I'll finish with this, is that historically there have been extended periods of time where most of the supervisors represent or come from agriculture. And I happened to, when I was on the board, I represented the heart of Fresno, District 2, which is basically, you know, the, the urban portion of the top half of Fresno in, in parts of Clovis. And so you would have three of five who happen to be, you know, a little bit more agricultural in their orientation. Well, then there was a second uh, that was uh, brought in and then a third. So right now you have uh, three individuals from the city of Fresno and two from the rural territories. Nice. So it changes a little bit over time. Got it. Well, um, we're going to change gears here for a second and do a, a section of this that I call overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw out some topics, people, concepts to you. You can tell me whether you think they're overrated or underrated. Sometimes they can be to the point where you might want to pass and that's fine as well. Um, and so we're going to start with, uh, we'll start with a softball. Um, overrated or underrated, the Fulbright Scholar Program. Personally, I think it's absolutely underrated. I think it's one of the most significant foreign policy tools that we have. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I, I think, you know, when you're in graduate school, you know about it, but people don't really know about it outside of it. So what kind of what, because there's, there's a purpose of like, you know, learning a language or advancing your research, but there's also a purpose beyond that, right? To build connections with other countries and relationships. So the, full, the Fulbright program is a, is a scholarship or fellowship that allows Americans to go and study or work overseas for a period of time, mostly academically oriented, and also for folks overseas to come to the U.S. So there's reciprocity uh, in, in how it's done. I was a Fulbright scholar in Greece uh, and worked at a think tank, um, focusing mostly on national security related issues. Um, but you cannot underestimate the value of America's strength is, is built not just on its innovation and its culture of entrepreneurship, but its intellectual uh, uh, capacities. And so when you bring students over to the US, um, the traditional model is that they get to understand what America is about and some of our, our virtues and some, you know, and some of our shortcomings as well. But they go back home and, you know, and bring that knowledge with them, it, it, it helps elevate pursuits that we have worldwide, in my opinion. Yeah. All right. Next one is a, a little even softer of a ball. Uh, the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. <laughs> well, it, I, I, I'm, I'm going to get stuck on this one. I would say it's both over and underrated. The okay. reason why it's, it's, it's underrated is because it applies not just to Greeks, but to Italians, to Mexicans, literally, it's, you can draw the same parallels. The reason why it's overrated is because, you know, we hope as Greek Americans that we have overcome these cultural uh, cliches, but uh, so when they're referenced, you kind of roll your eyes a little bit, but overall, it's a fantastic movie. Um, another heady concept, overrated or underrated, the concept of Eurasia. 
um, seeing Europe and Asia as one landmass as opposed to two separate continents. Now, I've had this discussion at length with my father-in-law and the dividing line between uh, regions of the world based on continental shelves, I think is overrated. You have to look at the sensibilities of the culture because they don't just stop at a landmass or a shelf. They bleed elsewhere. So dividing out, uh, you know, places like, like Middle East, for example, uh, or considering Russia to be European, that might be a stretch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, agreed. Um, next one, me and Ed's pizza. I, I am so loyal <laughs> to me and Ed's pizza. <laughs> I can't like literally, I'm not even certain that I, I'm going to confine myself to those two options. Me and Ed's pizza is just awesome. It's awesome for a couple, for a couple of reasons, but I'll just focus on one ranch with pizza works. Yes. With me and Ed's. Yes. Ranch with any other pizza, frankly, to me, doesn't work. Yes. And the second is that, uh, you know, there are lots of different types of pizza out there, you know, whether it's deep dish, thin dish, uh, or thin crust and, uh, Italian style or so on and so forth. But this feels like a uniquely Valley style pizza, which I think is very cool. And I love it. Classic yeah. combo all the way. I was making the case to someone that I had on that, you know, cause I constantly ask people about me and Ed's, I don't know why. Um, and I was making the case that it's the pizza that'll go to Mars because it is the pizza that is best reheatable that I've had because oftentimes pizza, you know, it kind of decays and yep. me and Ed's for whatever reason, it lasts and it'll be three days later and there'll be a random slice that's made its way kind of behind something in the fridge and I'll be like, it's still good. It's me and Ed's. It lasts forever. So um, I've become a believer. Now, uh, next one, next one's a little bit more abstract and I apologize. Um, and so it's maybe not an overrated or underrated, but um, really what I wanted you to talk about with is whether the, uh, the kind of more, uh, direct forms of democracy we have in California are overrated or underrated in terms of like uh, whether they produce good results, you know, whether the recall elections, uh, ballot and proposition measures, those kinds of things. Uh, I'm not even certain how to answer that because it, it, it is, there are so many different facets. Right. The parliamentary system, I think, is probably one of the most honest forms of democracy because it inspires a lot of different parties, a lot of more people to be involved. So you don't have, uh, you know, a duopoly here with amongst, you know, Republicans and Democrats. So I think our form of democracy is a little bit more limited um, than the parliamentary system that exists elsewhere in the world. But on the flip side, our system is more stable because all you have to do is look at Israel and this is what, what their fourth failed attempt to, to fashion a government in the last like year and a half, whatever it is. I mean, you can't maintain strong policies when you're at the whim of a confidence call that can usher in a whole new brand of leadership. So there's pros and cons to both our forms of, of government. California, I think, is, is not performing well in many respects. Uh, because I think we have lost the competition of ideas, that there is not a shared marketplace or exchange of ideas between the center left and the center right. 
because normally democracy works best when both those powers influence an outcome. That I think is, 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 is how government functions uh, uh, better than when you have a complete supermajority in all constitutional offices in California from one party, then it begins to break up into uh, more distinct uh, and deeper factions. So I think California is not performing uh, as well as it as it as it as it as it can. Um, and all you have to do is take a look at you know the metrics of you know the California dream, um, income inequality, uh, vertical opportunities, and the amount of COVID highlighted so much of what it means uh, to uh, to live in a, in a place where you can afford a home, and California is just not there. Um, so there, there are a lot of lessons that COVID is, is going to be teaching us that, we, that will continue to reveal themselves. But one of them is, is California worth the price tag and headaches? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the amount of uh, recall, uh, people that have signed up for the recall election is a testament to the fact that people are dissatisfied, whether you agree with them or not. Um, you know, if, if that large percentage of the population is that dissatisfied that they're going to work hard to get someone out of office sooner, it's, any, it's some indication that there's problems and that, you know, it is an, it is an idyllic place for a lot of people. Um, and so whether I agree or not doesn't really matter. It, it's a sign that there needs to be some new ways forward in, in how we think about how to structure society. I am going to change to the next one. Um, uh, overrated or underrated living in Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> uh, overrated. Okay. Nothing tell me against why. my Phoenician uh, friends and all the years that, you know, I spent living, growing up and living there. Um, Nobody should be living in a place that is 122 degrees. Uh, number one, I think that is one, one of the biggest gripes that I have. Um, but I mean, the desert's gorgeous, red rocks, you got the mountains, um, you got the verse. Arizona is absolutely fantastic. But living in that oppressive heat between May and let's say September was something that I would never want to go back to. Um, uh, just because it just doesn't fit with me. Now, Fresno is not exactly uh, uh, a, uh, a cool uh, temperature place either, but we have far more access, whether it be to water or to the mountains, than Phoenix does into the surrounding areas. Last one and overrated and underrated. Uh, environmental scorecards, overrated or underrated? You mean like political scorecards? Yeah. So there's a group that keeps track of environmental scorecards on different politicians. Oh, I, I think those are all meaningless. And I'll tell you why I think they're meaningless. Yeah. Is because one, the scorecard is only based on the legislative matters that come before a legislative body. So you're being graded on what is being brought before you. Maybe not necessarily on what is being, what legislation is being proposed or what ultimately makes it to the floor. Uh, and so when you, when you have these scorecards, you tend to have these factions that have more allegiance to a particular political organization or sentiment or philosophy that will gravitate toward the things that they like and then judge across the board. And I would be surprised in, you know, I was a Boy Scout. I take my, my boys to the river, a canoe. I love the outdoors. I was the conservancy chairman for many, many years, I don't think I probably have a very good scorecard with environmentalists if I were to look into it. 
Yeah. Well, and it doesn't tell you the reason why someone voted no. You know, sometimes uh, people can vote no because it doesn't go far enough. Or sometimes people can vote no because they see some other externality that's going to result from this particular legislation that uh, the average, uh, you know, political watcher doesn't see. And so it, those kind of simple uh, calculuses for rating somebody seem like they do more harm to our democracy than help, personally. Um, and can I, can I add that? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Point. There was an organization in Fresno that had a report card for uh, uh, public servants, city council, so on and so on. But they didn't have it for the Board of Supervisors. <laughs> and I was asked, why, why wasn't that the case? So eventually there was enough political pressure that they did uh, uh, grade the supervisors, but only took a position on, let's say, two, three, five pieces of legislation. And the question naturally then became, how many pieces of legislation were passed by the board that you did not take a position on? And there was, a, I think, a ratio of like, for every one position, there was 800 bills or whatever it was. And so that's where I think, you know, there has to be, it has to be much more comprehensive. Uh, it can't be just limited to a special interest or a special priority if you're going to grade a legislator. And I, understand, I understand the the motive. You're trying to inform voters to make decisions that are in their best interests. But, you know, <laughs> these people are obviously have motives themselves. And so it, it, it's an attempt to, yeah, and have an informed populace. But of course, you know, the challenge with that is, is you have to understand who's telling you the information. And that's the challenge we're in these days with, you know, where we get our news from and et cetera, et cetera. We can go down that ways a while. But I do want to transition to talking about water because, uh, you know, you said at the beginning, you know, we have a situation with a drought and, and this is a kind of a perpetual situation we're in in California, uh, given our climate, um, the ecology of California and how it works, you know, these seasons of drought and these seasons of plenty. Um, so my question to get real specific is, um, how do you think um, we can move forward as a state um, and create something that's equitable, uh, that allows farmers to have water while not, while not depleting the resources that we have, and I'm thinking about the water table here, um, how do we create something that works for everybody um, that also respects our environment and, you know, the fact that our resources are limited, ultimately? Well, that is the, that is the perennial question, is where, where is the balancing act? Because yeah. you do want to make certain that we look after our, our natural environment, our fish supply, um, our waterways, we also have to appreciate, especially after COVID, the vulnerabilities that were exposed in our supply chain, water security, and food availability. Um, and the latter, of course, being very important in terms of national security. So there is, I, I believe, a balance. Um, I remember when I, when I came to Fresno, um, I clerked for a federal judge who was nationally regarded as the water judge. And during that year of indentured servitude, I kind of joke about it. I dealt with a lot of water issues, but the quote that um, my judge gave me at the beginning, I think it was from Twain, that, um, that whiskey is for drinking and water's for fighting and could not be more true. In my personal opinion, I believe that you cannot have an endless supply of water uh, and not expect there to, for, for agriculture and not expect there to be environmental consequences. On the flip side, you cannot 
revert California into a pre-automotive uh, pristine state and think that that is a practical uh, a, you know, political agenda. Uh, so that's really how far apart some of these folks are on the issues. Um, there will be times, and in the course of the climate, uh, uh, the revelations of, of climate change and what's, what that means and how that's impacting us, is that we have to be very, very smart and look at things that we can change, like CEQA. CEQA, um, which was supported by, you know, former, you know, uh, governor of California, Ronald Reagan. I believe that he envisioned and others envisioned that we have to understand the environmental impacts um, when we develop things in California. And I still believe that's the case. But CEQA has Frankenstein into something completely different. Uh, it is no longer that environmental shield that it once was um, over decades that has become a, uh, a litigation sword. And it's used uh, very specifically um, to extract concessions in, frankly, I think, dubious and unmeritorious ways. So if we're serious about, you know, looking after the future of our food supply, we have to be serious about looking at CEQA reform. And we have to look at ways to transfer water more easily. Uh, and yes, storage and conveyance and investment in infrastructure. I mean, the fact that in 2021, we're talking about the merits of investing in infrastructure. We've been living off our grandparents' investments uh, in California. That's how far behind we are. So, you know, do I wish that there was um, more dams? Yes. More conveyance systems and canal systems and, and delivery systems? Absolutely. Do I want to make certain there's enough water uh, that we protect our natural environment? Yes. And I believe you can accommodate both. But you have to be pragmatic and you have to have the political will and the coalitions to get it accomplished. Do you think the government should play a role in what people farm? You know, I'm thinking about, you know, certain products that are often uh, point, pointed to as the products that do the most environmental harm. So like you, the usual culprit is almonds, right? You know, people will tell you how many gallons of water it takes to produce one almond. Do you think the government should have a, have a role in that? Do you think the free market will kind of force people in a direction of the things uh, that are best for uh, the world? Well, I think the government already has had a heavy hand in determining uh, what crops will be planted by virtue of water supply, water, water diversions. I shouldn't necessarily say water supply because for, for folks that may be watching this, let's assume that we have X amount of water that comes into our systems, whether it be snowpack or, um, or atmospheric or whatever, a certain percentage of that, and I think it's around 50%, flows into the natural environment uh, and uh, to keep our ecologies uh, uh, sustained and our ecosystems in sound shape. And that, that, that gets pushed out into the ocean, by and large. And a lot of folks say, well, well, you know, why are you wasting water? Well, no, you have to do that to make certain that the salinity doesn't encroach and damage the interior. Then you got about 40%, depending on your sources, and this is an imperfect pie, uh, that go into agriculture, about 10% that go into, let's say, urban use. That seems to be the way that it's, it's divided up. But um, when you consider that urban use may account for 10%, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure if that includes industrial or not, all the conservation efforts that we have at the urban level is only going to move the needle so much. 
I think we're around 85 gallons a person per day, I think on average in California, at least that's the way it was a couple of years ago. We need, we need water to grow the food that we eat as a nation. We need that national security priority protected. And I think what we have seen is that the environmental lobby in Sacramento is very powerful and it has had an undue influence in not allowing uh, the strongest future uh, for ag in, in, of course, in the valley, because you know a lot of these, you know, a lot of these inherited farms, the kids just don't want the headaches, so they sell and they convert land into housing, and once you lose productive land, it doesn't come back, and that is what I believe as the chair of the Senate Ag Committee and a staunch advocate for our valley's need for more water is that we need a balanced approach. And so far we have not seen that. <laughs> what do we need to do to make our canal system more functional? Are there certain changes and investments we need to make? Uh, I'm thinking about like the Kern Fryant um, canal and I'm thinking about different different uh, pieces of infrastructure. You mentioned infrastructure a minute ago. Um, yeah. and, I, and I know I did some, I, I spiraled out on some reading on these weeds that are growing in the canal system that they're trying to figure out how to get rid of. <laughs> I, I, it's just fascinating. I, I, I love uh, uh, doing a deep dive on something uh, obscure like that. Uh, but from what, your perspective, what do we need to do to really invest in that infrastructure? Everything. California has not properly invested. America, I should say. America has not properly invested in infrastructure uh, for a good long while. All you have to do is drive 99 and scratch your head on why it's taken 10 plus years to do these otherwise seemingly doable uh, 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 expansion projects. And so I think across the board, we need to invest in infrastructure. Um, I believe the Biden administration has made that a priority. Uh, the former President Trump had talked about it, but I don't think he didn't make the investment. But the same is true with water. So whether it's roads, or whether it is ports, or whether it is uh, um, water systems, all of it needs to be upgraded because they have not been, uh, they've not, they've not developed in the ways that it should. Uh, and when you compare us to other countries around the world, we're doing pretty poor in terms of you know GDP reinvestment in uh, in infrastructure and logistics. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I read this interesting little factoid, and we're going to transition to Armenia in a second, um, about, about uh, corrosion, rust, you know, um, and how uh, <laughs> corrosion uh, of metals uh, is one of the, it represents 3% of our GDP in terms of like dealing with corrosion. And, you know, the same is true with uh, concrete and different products—they just don't last forever. When you build a road, it's got it's got a timeline in which it needs to be repaired, fixed, or replaced. And yep. you know, those kinds of things, re repairing things, is not as sexy as building something new. And yep. it's it's hard to get people to want to spend money on things. They'd rather build some new fancy school, or rather put their money into some some facility. But you know, fixing roads. You know, ultimately, it affects our cars. It affects our miles per gallon. It affects so many different things. Um, and I, you know, I live on the 99 freeway to get to work. And going through Madeira on the 99 uh, right now is just is hell. It is total hell. And I literally drive on farm roads to get around it half the time. And so yep. I, I get it. And I, I, I hope for a future in which things are done efficiently. 
but let's let's we can talk about again can, that forever. Can I, can yeah, I also, there's, there's one last comment. The Frank Current Canal, I've, if I remember correctly, is operating at like 55 or 60 percent capacity. That's how decrepit uh, this system is. And I think one of the pol the political problems is that uh, a lot of public servants, I'm not pointing fingers, I think it's been collective over time, is that, like you said before, it's not sexy making something old better. You want something new. So you, when you have this short intermediate approach to decision making, which is dominated, I think, the political landscape, not just in Sacramento, but DC, you forfeit the long-term um, uh, opportunities. And that's what I think we need to kind of, you know, recalibrate. What are our long-term needs? Uh, what are our intermediate needs? Uh, and not just the shiny short-term turnaround things that might fit within a term in office. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about uh, Armenia. I mean, obviously Armenia has been in the news um, uh, in, in part because the conflict that happened with Azerbaijan uh, earlier this year, and then of course, you know, the, what we mentioned before about the Biden administration calling it a genocide for the first time. You know, I thought that was going to happen uh, uh, during Obama's term, uh, but he didn't do it. Um, so do you think, what do you think the ramifications are going to be for that? I mean, in terms of our relationship with Turkey, uh, I know Turkey plays a important regional role there. Um, at least it has in our foreign policy history. Um, do you think uh, it's, you know, do you think Erdogan is, this is going to change our relationship with them? Uh, or do you think it's, you know, it's going to continue, but just with gritted teeth? It's, it's tough to say. My personal, my personal opinion is that our relationship now with Turkey is nowhere near as important as it once was. Yeah. Um, I think Erdogan has shown that he has these strong autocratic tendencies, that Turkey has a model of democracy uh, and NATO membership in the Mideast uh, is not as important as it once was to uh presidents of the United States and leaders in Congress. And so I think you had a confluence of events that uh, played into whether or not the administration decided to call something historical, fact, historically factual and truthful as genocide. Um, Turkey has a role to play. Um, it does, it will always be of strategic importance and relevance. And I think we have overestimated based on the lobbying efforts that Turkey has made for decades that this is going to sour relations that they're going to close the base and all these threats. I think when push comes to shove, um, they are going to uh, grin and bear it. They're going to have a grudge. It's probably not going to go away, but we're going to continue to, to, to work on things uh, together uh, that are of mutual interest, but that, protected relationship, the veneer of that has waned considerably, as it should. It, they should never have been uh, protected the way that they were. Um, you know, I've, I've traveled to Armenia um, uh, with it four times and to Artsakh three times in, in personal as well as professional capacities. My wife's grandmother was a survivor that fled uh, to Greece um, in tw 1922. So this hits home. Um, 
America needs to stand for something. And that is something that has been a hallmark and cornerstone of who we are um, as, a, as a country, as a people. And when, you, when we don't stand up for these issues, then the message that sends across the world is they don't have to either. Yeah. And so as a matter of policy, I think it is good that we not only stick to our, 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 our moral convictions on what is right and what is inhumane and unjust and fight against those things, but it's also good policy that people know where America stands so that they will, they themselves uh, know how to conduct um, or the ramifications that may come um, if they act contrary to that. For someone who's not familiar with the long history of uh, denial, I guess you could say, uh, what does it mean for you know, Armenian people to have this word said by the leader of the United States? You know what, emotionally, um, it is, it's very important. You know, I mean, nobody has ever said that slavery didn't exist. And, if, and imagine an apparatus that said slavery never occurred. The raw emotion that would engender in those that had experience or were descendants from those that did, this is, this is a very powerful moment for the Armenian community to have not just the, the leadership in the, uh, in the legislative branch um, do so a couple of years ago, but to have the president of the United States do it. That means something because every president in real terms, and I'll even throw in Reagan on this one, every president, Republican, Democrat, as a candidate has basically said they would make that declaration. And as soon as they get in office, they never do. Biden's the first one to do it. And I think that is, is very important. Um, that we did so, but on the flip side, there's also a legal component to this that we have not seen rear its head yet. And that legal component is by, by making clear the political stance of the United States, that has bearing in our court system now. Because there were three Ninth Circuit opinions, I went back and forth, these were the Mosepian decisions um, that, uh, that that field was preempted by the ambiguity of the president, meaning that because courts could not weigh in on political questions, they looked to the actions of leadership. And because the president would not, then it meant that there was ambiguity, therefore legal matters could not be brought forward. That could very well change by virtue of the declaration of genocide. Yeah, it's exciting times. Um, you know, I'm hoping for a roaring 20s with a lot of exciting, uh, positive things happening uh, to follow this. Um, can we finish with books? Um, I finish every show with, uh, with book recommendations. Uh, these can be just books that have been helpful for you uh, that you'd like to share uh, just in your life, the important books uh, historically for you, or they could be what you're reading these days um, to share a little bit about uh, your interests right now. Boy. Um. So I studied literature and philosophy, and of course, I've done a lot of reading with my other, you know, graduate. Um, it's like asking me your, your favorite movies. Um, <laughs> yeah. I would say there, there, there are a few stands, a few standouts. The History of the Middle East by Mansfield, um, I think, is probably one of the most uh, well-written overviews 
of, of the region throughout the different empires that I, if anybody who wants to uh, uh, understand the Middle East and the Caucasus, I think that would be uh, uh, terribly important. Um, uh, there's, there's one that my wife just picked up that I'm very excited about is, in, it is theorizing a US-China war um, written by a, a Greek fellow who was the former uh, uh, admiral I forget his name at the moment, but I'm looking forward to reading that in the next uh, in the, the next couple of weeks. Is that fiction, uh, nonfiction? What is that? Yeah, it would be it'd be fiction. Well, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> I get that, but like uh, it, from a strategic point of view, like here's what we should do, or just like what it could look like. Yeah, I think it's a projection of our trajectories if they were to spin out and play out in different ways. What it would look like. And I think, you know, that is uh, certainly uh, going to be of interest. But uh, I think um, above everything, I have two little boys, as I mentioned before, eight and ten. And I want to make certain that they are readers. And I got to tell you, that's harder today than, I mean, it was hard when I was a kid. I mean, I didn't want to read. I wanted to go, you know, play outside and play ball. But now you're, you're competing with, the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the attractions of, you know, online gaming or online learning uh, because of COVID and online interaction like that is that's turning tough. So I'm trying now to figure out <clears throat> how I lead by example with my kids to say, hey, look at this really cool book. It, it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's way it's way better than, you know, the movie version, I assure you. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, I'm a school teacher, you know, and it's, 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 you know, when, when you love something, you want to share it, but sometimes, you know, it is, it is just, there's no way I'm going to outsell them. I teach teenagers, um, you know, sell them to pick up, pick up a good his, history book versus picking up their phone and swiping through TikTok or whatever they're doing. And it's just, it's a tough, it's a tough battle. And I think, you know, it really, it really starts with, with parents, you know, like how much uh, is there, is there shared reading time at night, you know, or is everyone just sitting in their respective corners on their respective devices? And it's just, you know, it's something that we need to figure out. It's our, it's our generation's problem. How do we help our kids, uh, you know, uh, continue these good habits? Um, but uh, let's close by just talking about where people find more uh, information about you and your work and what's going on up there in Sacramento. Sure. Uh, I think anybody that has an interest in, uh, in, in finding out what's happening in Sacramento, uh, we've got four offices. We, have, we represent, I think, the largest or amongst the largest of the Senate seats. Uh, it's got a, uh, a million in the district that spans 11 counties. So we've got uh, our main uh, district office in Fresno. Uh, we have one in Stanislaus. Amador, and then our, uh, of course, our capital office. We have four offices. So anybody who's listening to your podcast, if they have questions, you know, feel free to, you know, reach out, uh, follow us on, on social media, you know, your, your Facebooks and your Twitters and, and whatnot. Um, I think, you know, that is something that I really take seriously is getting our, getting folks engaged uh, in the political process, the civic process, um, because I've always been of the opinion that if you don't like the way things are, are being done, then get in the arena and give it a go. Yeah. Um, because that armchair quarterback thing, you know, doesn't really move the needle in our community. We need people to step up, uh, who believe strongly in the way things 
should be done. And that I think is probably one of the strongest lessons um, I can impart to the students that I teach as well is get involved. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, it, and people focus on national stuff too much. You know, there's so much local things going on. You could, we could probably talk about all the local things going on in Fresno. There's just, there's so much going on in your immediate environment where you can oh. focus your intention and, and not worry about who the president is or what drama is going on at, you know, uh, the house and the Senate, you know, cause those are important things, but um, you have, you're most in control of your immediate environment around you. Yep. I mean, you know, I think, what's the old saying that, you know, all politics is local. Mm-hmm. It, yep. That is probably the most understated uh, in terms of importance, uh, a, 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 a concept that literally everything, whether it be at the city council, school board, county, state, federal, it all comes down to your community and uh, um, stay engaged. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. And uh, the questions were, were loads of fun. And hopefully uh, your listeners uh, <laughs> might find uh, some discussion points uh, of interest. I hope so. Politics, religion, culture, art, music, show some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Senator Andreas Borges. As always, you can support this podcast by either leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.